Good morning, City Light. My name is Mo. Uh, I am one of the pastors here, and I think it's crazy that we're in the middle of October already, uh, which basically means winter is coming, y'all. Right? Um, I'm not happy about it. I've been pleading with Jesus to uh, give me some grace to see how this might be beautiful right now, so I'm having a hard time in my life. If you would pray for me, that would be great. I'm struggling. <laughs> no, but anyway, um, today we get to jump back into the book of Hebrews and finish out chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I hope that you do, uh, open it up to chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. Uh, now, uh, when you preach a sermon, you typically want to start out that sermon with some sort of compelling illustration or a list of questions or at least some statements that kind of grab the hearts and grab your attention. And I'm just not going to do that this morning. Uh, the reason why I'm not going to do that this morning is because the author does it for us in our text. And so in light of that, I want to just invite us to walk with the author of Hebrews this morning as he unfolds uh, just a deep warning about unbelief, but then also encourages us with our assurance that we have in Christ. Amen. So let's uh, open it up, starting out in verse seven and uh, see what he has to say. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So it's an encouraging start to that message. Uh, but uh, So it starts out, though, it, it paraphrases Psalm 95, which is by King David. Uh, and it's a warning to Israel to not commit the sin of unbelief like they did a thousand years prior. Now notice it prefaces this whole thing with, in a present tense saying, the Holy Spirit says, like right here, right now. And basically what it's drawing out for us is that this is the word of God. This is Holy Spirit breathed, inspired word of God. And though this text was written 2,000 years before us, 1,000 years before Hebrews was when that psalm was written, and 1,000 years before that was when the actual uh, incident occurred that psalm is talking about, that even though 4,000 years has passed, this word stands still today. It stands true, it stands living, it stands active today because it comes from the Holy Spirit of God. And so it's telling us, man, this, this, this is for today. It hasn't changed. And it also illustrates the fact that we as God's people haven't changed that much either. Uh, the illustration that the Spirit uses is out of Exodus, actually. And every Jew would have known what Psalm 95 was talking about. They would have known that this was a psalm referencing the events that took place in Exodus 17. Now, so here, here's what happened. Israel's, Israel was enslaved by Egypt for over 400 years. So Egypt had them in slavery. Uh, they would uh, treat them very poorly, and they were basically building bricks for most of their life for that 400 or so years. And then God steps in through his person Moses, which is the leader of Israel, and, and says, hey, I want to free my people. And so he, he gets Pharaoh's attention, which is the king of Egypt at the time, and, and he says, hey, let my people go. Like if you've seen Charleston Heston, Ten Commandments, it was a bad movie, but it kind of illustrates the story a little bit. Uh, DreamWorks, Prince of Egypt. There's, anyway, there we go. There we go. Millennials. That's great. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but that's kind of the story that plays out there. And so he sends several plagues upon plagues to try to get the attention of Pharaoh and the Egyptians to let Israel go. And finally, just finally, the last plague comes out. The last plague, which basically was to, to take the life of the firstborn of every uh, Egyptian, was sent out. And so it started at midnight, and every Israelite 
actually put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, and that was to basically guard them from death coming through their part of Egypt so that like death would not come to their firstborn. And so that blood was a, a, a sign to death saying, hey, your sin will be covered, which is obviously a foreshadowing of Christ saying, hey, your sin will be done away with. But so death came in, and there was a great mourning in all of Egypt. Because every Egyptian first child, first son was dead. And so there was a great mourning. However, there was also a great celebration for Israel because they knew that their victory was coming. And so what happened is God, God the Holy Spirit, or God the, it came in his presence in a, a cloud and was leading his people out of Egypt. Like that was the glorious thing. It's like 400 or so years, and now he's leading them out. So 1.5 million people or so is being led out. And they're actually kind of rich at this point because um, they, they came out and was like, hey, these are the things we needed. Egypt was like, here, take everything we have, get out. Like, so they plundered all of Egypt, and so they're on their way. And as they're on their way, they get kind of, they got their backs against the wall because all of a sudden Pharaoh changed his mind for one final time and starts coming after him. He sends the entire army after them, their backs against the wall. There's a sea right behind him. And what does God do? Well, God comes again to the rescue for his people and he parts the sea. And as he parts the sea, they walk through on dry land of all things. And then uh, as Pharaoh and his army are pursuing them, he drops the water on them. They drown. They're all dead, and Israel makes it to the other side with victory. They make it to the desert. They make it uh, uh, to this place that they could possess, and, and honestly, soon thereafter, the, the call was saying, hey, we're, I'm, God said, hey, I'm going to give you a land of your own in Canaan called the promised land, and you're going to possess that. That was his promise to them, and so the lesson that we find, though, is the fact that though that million and a half people made it across, not all of them made it to the promised land. In fact, anyone above the age of 20 did not make it except for two individuals made it to that promised land. And so the lesson that we learn from the history of Israel is that it's possible to have some really good beginnings, but not end so well. And so, so, so what happened though? Because I think this is also something that we have to wrestle with in our human condition. We have this tendency to have some good spiritual beginnings, but not necessarily have a good spiritual ending. So what happened to them? Well, here's what happened. Verse 9 through 11 kind of gives us a summary of what took place with them is that they started to grumble against God. And it's actually pointing out a specific event in Exodus 17. So, so what happens is after Israel has their exodus, they're out of Egypt, they have freedom, they, they, they turn up camp at Mount Sinai and they start to get thirsty. And so they start to grumble, they get a little hangry about some things, and they start coming after Moses about it. And as they're coming after Moses, Moses is like, what's going on? And so he goes to God, is like, okay, God, I don't know what's wrong with these people, but hey, like, help me out. Which was, which was th- just at this point, he was kind of accustomed to this reality, right? Like, so they kind of was on this spiral of like grumbling against Moses, which then grumbled against God. And then God came through and saved them because, I mean, think about it. At this point, he had freed them from 400 or more years of slavery. Uh, he made them walk across dry land through a sea. When they got to the other side, he provided manna, which was food for them without them ever having to labor or kill anything for them to eat. Then he sent quail at one point so that they can have meat because they complained and grumbled. And now they're grumbling again because they don't feel like that God's going to provide enough water. And so you just have this continuance of people seeing the beauty and the magnificence and the miraculous that God had done, and yet they still grumble and quarrel every single time that things get uncomfortable or they have to sacrifice something in order to, to continue to live. And as I said before, God's people haven't changed that much because that's us, right? 
Like God saves us. He, he saved us from our own sin. He, he brought us out of hell into his presence, into a beautiful relationship with him. And yet we still quarrel. We still grumble when things get a little bit difficult. And when things get a little bit difficult, our knee jerk isn't to say, man, God, I'm with you. Let's keep walking through this thing. No, our knee jerk is to blame God, blame our circumstance, or blame somebody else for why things aren't the way we want them to be. See, this plays out in different ways. It could be that, hey, I don't have enough money, so therefore God isn't providing enough. Or, or we don't have the right kinds of relationships that we really want, and so God and his relationship with us is not enough, or at least enough in the relationship that we have with his people. I don't feel completely fulfilled in my job, in my schooling, in this season of life, which is essentially ultimately saying that you're finding your fulfillment in something else other than Christ. And I could go on and on and on, but the point is, is that we can truly relate to Israel here. We're not just looking at, at them as like, oh, why wouldn't they get this? No, we've experienced miracles. We've seen the magnificent in Christ, and yet we still grumble. You see, they aren't the only bratty kids that God has, right? So here's Israel. They're grumbling against Moses and ultimately against God, and they, they were putting God to the test. And Moses is like, man, why are you grumbling against me? Why are you putting the Lord your God to the test? And so, of course, what Moses does every time, he goes after God for his people, and he requests, say, God, okay, how... How would you like to provide for this? And so God calls them to strike a rock, which provides water for them. But the primary posture of Israel's heart was one in the wilderness of grumbling, quarreling amongst each other, and ultimately unbelief. They were fair-weather fans of God, which means that they would enter in thinking really excited about God. But when things got difficult, they no longer were in the cheering section, much like the Huskers might be next weekend. Um, Oh, some of y'all didn't like that. Okay. Uh, that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at, though. He's pleading with his church in verse 8, saying, man, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in, as in the rebellion. He's pleading with his church. And, and see, the same sentiment is actually played out throughout the entire book of Hebrews. That's God's people. He wants them to have a persevering faith and not just one of a, an instant decision. See, we see two warnings kind of coupled together in this text. And the first warning is that we don't repeat the hardened heart of Israel from old. That we don't repeat the, the generation in Exodus uh, that grumbled against God. You see, the people in this book, in Hebrews here, have most likely, a lot of them have experienced a spiritual exodus of some sort. Like they got excited about what God was doing. It was beautiful and even maybe dramatic for them. But the author knows his church. He knows the people he's speaking to. He knows the church in general, us, have this tendency to, to start out really well, but not end very well. Which means that when we're undergoing hardship, our faith sometimes can come a little weary. They can, it can waver a little bit then when things get difficult. And so the question on the table is like, will you hold fast? Is your faith going to hold you fast. In my city group, uh, my sister-in-law, Christy, uh, she, she gave a good example of this, of the Christian life. She said, actually, it's kind of like marriage, that on the wedding day, you make the decision to marry this person, have faith that this person will be with you, and then you continue in cultivating a relationship with that person that you've committed to. That's a decision you made here, but it's still manifested in a relationship now, but then when things get difficult, it doesn't change the decision you made, right? Like you're still in that decision. You're still in relationship. And so it's important that, 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 is, that we understand that in this community, that decision doesn't, that, that commitment was made. 
You see, the grumbling of Israel from verse 9 was that they presumed God's grace and grumbled against him directly. They felt entitled to God's gifts at this point. They, they felt like they deserved something. Now, our flaw isn't that we directly grumble against God. No, we grumble against our circumstances, right? We grumble as though God's power was only good for when we prayed a prayer one time to give us grace to get us out of hell, but it's not sustainable. It's not substantial throughout the rest of life. Like we presume his grace without acknowledging his power, essentially. Grumbling comes from only believing that God's power when we prayed to receive Christ is only for that day, but not today. Right? In this text, it's really important to notice that today is mentioned three different times, implying that faith in Christ is not simply a one-time decision, but it's something that is cultivated over and over and over again for today, for tomorrow, and the next day. See, we need a sustaining, a life-depending faith in Christ to even get through every season and every situation of every day that we're going through. In the Exodus, Israel experienced God's grace, but they did not have an enduring to the end faith, right? And this, according to verse 11, left them out of God's promised land. Not good news, right? Like, not good news to not enter God's rest, which is actually the second part of that warning for us. Our second warning is acknowledging the truth of the gospel without actually surrendering our life to Christ. See, this can leave us out of God's rest and and ultimately out of eternal life. You see, our warning is though we may have hopeful beginnings, they don't always equal pleasant endings. A mental assent or an understanding of facts is not true faith in Jesus. Uh, Agreeing to those facts uh, cannot save your soul. So, So what do we do with that, though? If just agreeing to the facts, only giving a mental assent to information isn't the thing that saves our soul, how do we handle that? What do we do with that? Well, the author transitions from the warning illustration of Psalm 95 to address his church just directly head on. And so let's take a look at it, how he handles this. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear the voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so what he's getting at here, he he basically summarizes the warning and saying, hey, don't apostatize. Don't get led away from, like, once you've heard from Christ, do not walk away from him. The, The result is a great penalty. The result of walking away from Christ is a great penalty. In fact, the whole Bible and even Christ himself is warning against that walking away unbelief in Jesus. And some of us, I think we like to make that out of as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad, I should be pretty good at the end, right? Like, or that we try to make this this moral behavior type of thing of like, man, that's what it means to walk away from Christ is if I, I, I walk away from just being a moral good guy. And that's not what it's getting at. No, apostasy, so to, to understand that, means that, that we might have made an intellectual decision at one point and might even go to church, go to city group, be a part of a huddle and read our Bibles and give and yet still not have a true believing faith in our heart. That's what that means to walk away with actual sustaining belief. It's not primarily about what we've done or what we do for Christ or don't do for Christ. It's about believing that what he actually accomplished on the cross is real, believing that in the innermost being of our heart. And so the danger, the warning is against disbelief. 
disbelief that Jesus really did come and die for our sins and that he did resurrect from the grave, allowing for a real true relationship in Christ. If we disbelieve that, we might end up out of the, the graceful presence of God. And so all of Hebrews chapter 3, though, is stating this reality. It's saying, hey, Jesus is greater than Moses. And if the penalty for not believing in Moses, rebelling against Moses, is not getting into the earthly promised land of Canaan, that how much greater the penalty for not believing in rebelling against Christ? Well, that, that, it has to be a greater penalty. It's a, it's a penalty of not having eternal life. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not having the eternal blessing of a relationship with God. In, in the book of Hebrews, this, this particular church, they were in clear and present danger right there, right then. They were, they were in danger of losing their life for their faith in Christ. Like that's the realness of what he's pleading with them. So it's not just a regular life, but it's like you're in the midst of persecution. And so if, you, if they decided to say, hey, I'm going to spare my life by saying, no, I don't follow Jesus, they might save their life here and now, but they won't save it for all of eternity. That's the danger there, that even to the point of death is the, the call of faith for us, the call of faith, faith for them is that I believe so much that I'm even willing to face death for it. Because they saw that the faith in a cross was much more enduring, much more blessing than this life here and now. So you, have, you ever play the game uh, Uncle? Now some of y'all probably know what that is. So when you wrestle, I did this with my cousins. We used to wrestle and stuff. And, and when you get a guy pinned, you like wrap his arm behind his back and you pull real tight until he just says uncle, right? So it's crying out basically, I'm in submission to you. Some of y'all are like, why would you do that to someone? Well, we're crazy boys. That's just part of the thing, right? But this, that's what life is. That's what they're experiencing right now that if you profess faith in Christ, what you're in is a proverbial wrestling match as to whether or not you're going to submit to the pain and the destruction of the world or are you going su- to submit to Christ himself and the beauty of the blessing of having eternal life with him? That's, what, that's what's offered there is to say uncle to that and not to the pains of this world. Uncle to the, the eternal and not the finite. See, that's how serious belief is. Like faith in Christ is a, is a big deal. It's a life and death thing. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I do want to say it's a beautiful, joyful relationship with God that's all fulfilling, all sustaining, but life is still at stake in that. It's not a, a get out of hell free card and then all of a sudden life is just the way it is. And it's a true, utter belief that Christ really did come and he really did die and he really did raise from the grave. That, that's what we're called to. And there's possibly some of us in the room right now who have prayed a prayer one time, but since then haven't submitted their life to Christ. And in verse 12, it calls that kind of unbelief evil. Now, there might be a question lingering in some of your minds in the room at this point of, if I confess faith in Christ, can I lose my salvation, right? Can can it be taken away from me over time? Well, Well, let me help you with that. If you place your faith in Jesus, you cannot lose it. Romans 8, 38 through 39 is so clear. It says, nothing can snatch us away from God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 10, 8 through 11, however, also says this. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth, it doesn't stop there, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see that? 
See, confession isn't enough. An intellectual assent to facts and information isn't enough. It has to be a true and utter heartfelt belief in the Lord Jesus Christ crucified in his victory through the resurrection over Satan's sin and death. That's what the call is. And then verse 14 helps us out even more. It says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is pivotal right here. This answers that question of whether or not we can lose our salvation versus keeping it for all of eternity. Notice the tense. It says have, which is present tense. If you have shared in Christ, present tense, if we hold to that original hope to the end. So what it's saying, here's what, here's what it's saying. All those who are faithful to the end prove that they have, had, have shared in Christ, right? So, 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 so holding to God is not the causal effect of salvation. What I'm saying there, the same is true in the other way around. Like if, if you don't hold fast to the end, that means you never shared in Christ. So, so let me be clear. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, that goes on forever. Like whether or not you hold on to Christ to the end is not an indication of, of the fact of faith. It's not the thing that speaks into faith. No, it is a byproduct of faith. Here's what I want to say. If you are in Christ, you will be faithful to the end. But if you're not, you won't. So how do we do that though, right? That's a daunting thing to even summarize in our hearts that faithful to the end, that's a long time. For me to be faithful to Christ to the end. It's a heavy thing, especially since several of us have gotten this individualistic gospel, a gospel that would lead us to be more independent of others than we ought to be. Like the Bible doesn't really give us space for this individual gospel. Look, your relationship with God is personal and it is intimate, but is not private and solo. You're not Rambo. You can't do it that way. Amen? So, so look at verse 13. Let me show you. He gives us a command. He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, he's getting really practical for us now. He's he's trying to land the plane for us. And he says, exhort each other every day as long as it's called day. So just simply put, to say as long as it's called day, how many days of the week say day in them? All of them, just to just in case you didn't know that. Um, all day, say day. So he's like, forever, until the end of your life, every day, as believers, we are going to call, to call each other to truth and exhort one another. And I know we don't use that term exhort that often in our language, but simply put, what it's calling us to do is plead with, tell the truth to, sp- explain the gospel to one another every single day. You see, belief in Jesus is not done alone. If you continue in faith, it's going to need a community effort. We need each other. And so belief is a community project, not a personal acknowledgement. You see, the Christian life is marked by a continual repentance of sin or turning away from our sin, changing our mind and our heart about our sin and walking in the direction of God. But we can't do that on our own. Whether that's the sin of omission or commission, omission meaning not doing the things you know you ought to do, or commission, doing the things you know you're not supposed to, or thinking the things that you're not supposed to, they're alluring things. They're appealing to us, so appealing that that we need others to speak truths into that place because it leads to unbelief. If sin wasn't something that was appealing to us, we we would never do it. Like, we wouldn't participate in it. In fact, part of Israel's grumbling was because they thought the grass was greener on the other side. Like, literally, there were times where they would speak to God and say, man, in Egypt, they fed us consistently. We didn't have to go without. In Egypt, we weren't thirsty. We always had water, right? So they're looking as if slavery was a better option than freedom. 
that being in the presence of God was, was not better than being in the presence of their slaveholders. And we do this too. A lot of the time we don't really see it, which is why we, we need others in the body of Christ to point out the blind spots in our life. So as my city group was looking at this text this last week, they looked, we zeroed in on verse 13 and said, okay, how do we apply that? How do we walk in light of verse 13 as a city group, as a community? Because he's saying, man, as a community in Hebrews, this is how you ought to walk. And we're like, hey, we, we have that community right here, right now. How do we walk according to that text? And so here's what we came up with. We came up with three things we said that it required for us to faithfully exhort one another in truth and in the gospel. That first thing is we must be faithful to care for and love one another. See, the primary way that you see this play out actually is showing up. <laughs> like if you consistently show up, put your body next to people, that's one of the primary ways to love and care for them. Now, I know there's some times where you can't make it and that, that's life and stuff like that. That's okay. But the call to be in a city group is a call to commit to Jesus, but also commit to one another especially with those, like our commitment to one another is especially for those who don't show up all the time, right? Like, like if I haven't seen you in a while, it's my responsibility to call you up, text you and say, hey, how you doing? I miss you. I love you. How do I help? How do I come alongside you? Because most likely it's a life thing that people are going through. And so, man, we're committed to one another. The second thing is we must be transparent with one another. Now, this also has two sides to it, right? The, the first call of that is that, hey, I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to tell you about things that are going on in my life, real and true stuff. And, and so, for instance, a, a couple we know did that, right? Angie and Kurt Green did that with their city group. Like, we prayed for them a few weeks ago in here. And, and the beautiful thing about their, their city group is that they have, they have answered that call. Like, in Kurt and Angie's transparency to share what really is going on in their life, their city group answered the call. They have been there to gather in prayer. They've organized prayer gatherings. They've, they've got GoFundMe pages for these folks, and they've cried real tears for Kurt and Angie and with Kurt and Angie. It's a huge thing. It's a family that they, that they get to belong to, and it's real stuff. If Kurt and Angie doesn't let them in, they don't have this real Christ-following family to be in support of them. It's beautiful. I mean, they, they've done such a good job that, that, that I called Kurt and was like, hey, how can I help? They're like, ah, I'm good, stiff arm. Like, it was, it's, it's beautiful what that city group is doing for them. And, and that's what we're called to right there. It means that we tell each other about some of the uncomfortable things in our life. It means maybe exposing things that, we, that aren't necessarily beautiful so that we can bond together in those works and be able to tell each other the truth and tell each other the gospel. The third thing and the last thing that we said was we must be willing to receive truth and grace. I would argue this is the hardest one in the entire list. We must be willing to receive grace and truth because here's the thing. As humans, we're really fragile, right? Uh, we don't, we don't want to be judged, and we definitely wanna, don't want to be told that we're wrong. I know I don't. I don't like to be told that I'm wrong. And so, so to receive this truth and, and receive this grace is actually a very difficult thing. It means that when you open up your life to people, that you have to be willing to hear, and not only hear, but receive that truth. The truth about your sin, the truth about how you need to grow in your life. It, it means you might have to kill your pride just a little bit, because others... Others just maybe have a better vantage point of what's going on in your life than you do. you got some blind spots, most likely. And, and, and hear this. Maybe, just maybe, the one that's speaking into your life is a person who loves you and cares about you. And, and maybe they're wanting to not judge you and belittle you, but actually love you with truth. Wanting to serve you and give you real love by the proclamation of the gospel over your life and the proclamation of what is true about God. 
The easiest way, the easiest way to receive and hear truth is by recognizing who the author of that truth is and who the person that they're using is speaking that truth is. Are they a person that loves you? Are they a person who, who cares about you? If so, maybe it's going to be worth receiving and hearing from them. Maybe the Spirit of God that lives in you lives in them, and He's using them to speak truth into your life. He's using them to help you grow, help you conquer some of the sin in your life. Maybe He's just using them to show you that, man, I love you enough to tell you the truth. You see, belief is a community project. We need each other. There's there's no shortcut to faithfulness in Jesus. We need the community of God to be with us. In order for us to persevere in a true unrelenting faith and belief in Christ, we need the community of God. Sunday morning is not going to cut it. Pastor and author Kit Hughes says it this way. He says, we need to be able to humbly say to our drifting brothers or sister, today, brother, today, sister, listen to his voice so that you may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, making tomorrow's repentance and faith more difficult. I remember a a brother of mine, his name's Chris. uh, He did this for me 10 years ago, and I've never been the same. Um, he, uh, he humbly came, but boldly spoke truth into my life. He was on a, a mission trip for about four weeks in South Africa. And, uh, I was supposed to be raising support, uh, to be on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ or crew. And, and so I, I was kind of excited about that opportunity, but I also uh, give into the get by syndrome. And, and so Chris calls me up when he, when he's, when his flight lands, which is something that Austin does for me all the time. Whenever he lands his plane, it's very interesting. Uh, anyway, uh, so he lands his plane. He calls me up. He's like, Hey man, um, how's it going? I was like, Oh, it's going all right, man, dude. He's like, Oh, how's support coming? I was like, you know, it's kind of slow, you know, but God's going to provide, you know, basically kind of cloud over the fact that I haven't done a whole lot. Uh, and he's like, Oh sweet. So how much have you raised in that time period? I was like, Oh, just a little bit. He's like, hey, man, let's uh, go grab breakfast tomorrow, and I'll buy. I was like, sweet, I'm going to get to hang out with my boy for a little bit, have some breakfast with him, and he's going to buy. That's even better. So we hang out. We go to McDonald's, which is just a, you know, a fancy uh, restaurant for breakfast, um, and, and we're sitting there, and he, like, right away, like, speaks up and says, hey, bro, what the heck are you doing? And I was like, oh, what you talking about, bro? And he's like, he's like, what are you doing? Like, he's like, I, there are people out there who love you and care about you, are praying for you, are pouring in, are supportive of you, and you're not putting your hand to the plow. Now, my knee-jerk reaction to that in that conversation is like, what, boy? Like, where do you want to go? Like, let's bust a move. Let's go, right? Like, that was my knee-jerk to th- think of that he was just being critical or that he didn't understand my situation. But then I remembered who it was coming from. It's coming from my brother. A guy who's loved me in the darkest places of my life. The guy who I know if I called him right here, right now, in this moment, would come to my need if I needed help. You see, he had, he had not, if he had not had that conversation, I don't think I would have noticed the allure of just getting by. The allure of the sinfulness of just doing the bare minimum to get by. I would not have noticed the allure of the dark places of my heart. I would not have noticed the allure of blaming my circumstances, somebody else, or God for what's going on in my life or for why things aren't the way they should be. See, I needed Chris to speak truth, and he needed me to know that he loved me enough to tell me that truth. You see, the writer of Hebrews is is proclaiming this over his people to exhort one another daily because that's what we need. We need that as the body of Christ. And so, so here's what he lands the plane on to, to kind of help them walk out with some, some good, good questions. So in Hebrews 16, or the verse 16 through 19, he closes the section with six questions uh, and the, the three pairs of questions to just to dig into our souls, to ask ourselves, to create attention in our heart uh, about these things. And so let's, let's just kind of work our way through these questions. Verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled 
Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? You see, that rebellion that was taking place was not people outside of the building, but people that were actually in the building alongside God's people. They saw the miracles. They heard God's voice, but yet they all died. They all were left without entering God's rest. You see, the excitement had worn off, and all of a sudden they were still left out. So, so basically the response to it was, man, they just simply had an emotional response, believed some facts, but weren't actually in the family of God. The second question, 17, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? You see, the people who angered God for those 40 years were those who did not believe he could provide for them. They didn't believe that he was good ultimately. And this was a warning that just because you've prayed a prayer one time doesn't cut it for you. Like there there must be a true unrelenting belief in Jesus Christ crucified. And then in verse 18, it says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who are disobedient? You see, to hear God's voice and not heed that voice is disobedience to God. And to, turn, to, to not turn to him in faith is disobedience, which can keep you from that rest. To not believe that Jesus Christ, in your heart, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and raised from the grave will keep you out of God's rest. And finally, he, he gives a statement rather than a question. He says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It's a powerful statement. It's a statement that's supposed to draw up actual questions, reflective questions for us. Have we experienced a true faith, a true exodus in Jesus? Do we have the community we need in place to affirm us, to speak truth to us, and love us into a continual belief in Jesus? Is the faith that you have in Jesus one that is greater than your circumstance and can withstand the test of time? And I don't mean just riding out the test of time. I mean thriving in the midst of turmoil and chaos. See, there's a a great confidence that we all can have in Jesus. However, it's not based on how hard we hold on to him, but it's based on the sufficiency of Christ holding on to us. So there's some of us in the room right now, you're you're probably convicted, uh, and and you you might be struggling a little bit because you're like, man, I think I just gave an intellectual assent. I think that just maybe I've been believing facts rather than believing in the true Jesus. Well, can I share a story with you? There was a brother of mine. Who was, who was here with us. He, he, um, he came to church on Sundays. He served on Sundays. He was a part of a city group and a part of a huddle, but didn't know Jesus. He gave a mental assent when he was a kid. He went to church every single Sunday as a kid, but it was all up here, and there wasn't a true heartfelt belief in Jesus. Now, praise be to God, by his grace, he was surrounded by Jesus, but he was also surrounded by the community. And eventually, this brother actually did give his life to Christ. But the danger that he was in is that he needed to do that. And so my call today is, man, to tell you, salvation is today. Today is that day of salvation that if you have not truly placed your faith in Jesus, if you have not truly acknowledged that, man, I have sinned against a holy God and I desperately need a Savior, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for those sins and the sins today and the sins tomorrow, and he rose from the grave so that I might have a relationship with God. Man, today is the day of salvation. Place your faith in him. Today. And see, like Jesus wants to continue to tell us that he's greater than our heroes, He's greater than our circumstances, and he's greater than our sins. 
And and clinging to that truth is an ever-growing relationship with God and his people. We need each other. That's how it's sustained. Belief in Jesus is a community project, not a personal acknowledgement. It's everlasting and not simply a moment in time. Amen?